Hello, welcome along. Is it just me or is life down here on Earth just a little bit boring? Is it all the same? Must be time for an adventure across the universe. Let's get to it with a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. Thank you for being there. This is the show where we explore all the incredible science secrets that are lurking. Some way out across the galaxies, some down here on Earth. We will try to discover it all. And this week, we're going big, we're going brilliant, going very tasty, learning all about cheese. Maybe you love cheese, a normal cheddar, a creamy brie, a hard edam. Whatever cheese is your favourite, we're talking about something probably a bit worse. Cheese from a thousand years ago. We'll learn how they made it with archaeology expert Miranda Evans. During the Neolithic, almost everyone was lactose intolerant. So no one could eat fresh milk or consume fresh milk without getting the negative side effects that you get if you're lactose intolerant and you drink milk. And we'll take a trip to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to hear how you get around Mars. A message from Mars can take 20 minutes to arrive. That's hardly a quick call. And there are only one or two opportunities to communicate each day. Basically, the ExoMars rover has to look after itself most of the time, and that includes most of the navigation. And I've got your questions this week. They are about sneezing, whether you can do it with your eyes closed, and why we have different languages. It's coming up in a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's get into it this week with your science in the news. Now, climate change could harm life in the deepest parts of the ocean. The Twilight Zone is over 200 metres down in the ocean and strange, mysterious creatures have lived down there for years and years in very specific conditions. Now, it's so deep down there that sunlight can't get down very far, which means it's very cold. So it's a bit like a fridge in this part of the sea. It keeps strange life around for much longer. Problem is, as the Earth warms up because of the climate crisis, global warming could reduce life there by 40%, almost half. It makes you think when we hear stuff like this, doesn't it? That the climate crisis doesn't just affect us, but it affects so many different forms of life all around the Earth. That's why we need to pay attention to what we do to help out others. Also, Scottish wildcats are on the brink of extinction. Loads of these cats run wild all around the Scottish Highlands, but they could be almost done. A project by Nature Scott has said that because they've been breeding with domestic cats, there are a few of them around. Also, disease and loss of their homes and habitats were identified as risks why the Scottish wildcats could be gone fairly soon, which is very sad news. I love the idea that these cats, big or small, just live all around the wild and do their own thing. And finally, some better news. A zoo in the UK is the home to some new rare pigs. A pair of these rare piglets have been born in Newquay Zoo, which is down in Cornwall. The Visayan warty pigs, which are called that because of the fleshy warts on their face, which are used to protect it in fighting, normally live in the forests of the Philippines. There are fewer than 200 left in the wild, which is why it's brilliant news that conservation efforts all around the world, like here in the UK have helped to boost their numbers. That's brilliant. Let's spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering now. For the last few weeks, we've been catching up with our good mate, our engineering expert, Engers, and learning all about engineering. How stuff is made, who invented it, why we still use it today, and we've been working through A to Z, from A's to acoustics to Z's, zoos, and other things that start with Z. 
And we're getting a new letter right now with Engers to find out which one he needs to help us spin the wheel. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's N, and N is for nanotechnology. Thanks, Engers. Now, when you think of engineering, you might think massive structures like bridges and tower blocks or space rockets exploring the solar system. Houston, we have a problem. But there's a branch of engineering that, well, likes to do things on a smaller scale, working with some of the tiniest building blocks of all, and that's nanotechnology. Nanoscience. The science behind nanotechnology involves studying the application of things that are between 1 and 100 nanometers in size. To give you an idea of how small this is, a human hair is 100,000 nanometers wide. Nanotechnology is about altering materials at this most basic level, creating new materials, and even designing micro-machinery. Let's zoom in with Engers to find out more. You might be wondering, well... How can anyone work with materials at such a small scale? The answer is by using microscopes and manipulator technology that's designed to pick up and move very tiny things around. Now, not all microscopes are the same. Light microscopes, which you might have at school, are good at seeing things as small as, say, bacteria. But a single bacterium is still several hundred nanometers wide. And did you know, light has a width of between 500 and 800 nanometers, so we can't use light to see things smaller than that. Electron and atomic microscopes are therefore used to see very small objects. These powerful microscopes don't rely on light, but feel the object and create an image. Let's take a look at some of the amazing developments made possible by this exciting technology. First up, body armor. Now, body armour isn't just for the battlefield. It's essential for police and security officers. Traditional body armour disperses a weapon's force across a larger area than the point of impact, preventing it from penetrating the wearer's body. But a large amount of energy still transfers through, causing bruising. Engineers have found that introducing nanoscale carbon tubes into Kevlar materials is a way to prevent blunt force trauma. A cool area of nanotechnology is in medical equipment like bandages. These are normally applied to protect wounds from further contamination. But engineers are using nanotechnology and incorporating certain metals known as noble metals, which have natural antimicrobial properties, into bandages to help combat infections. You might be wondering what metal has to do with healing a wound. But take silver. Silver disrupts the growth of bacteria by blocking its metabolism, and engineers have developed ways to create bandages with silver nanoparticles woven into them. These bandages are commonly used to dress injuries that would otherwise be resistant to treatment and prone to infection, like burns. Nanotechnology isn't just about creating new materials. It's even in the food we eat. Nanoscientists are developing techniques to precisely tailor the smallest particles of food to provide a specific taste, texture or nutrient density. For instance, if a company wants to make its mayonnaise thinner, it could replace a portion of the fat content of each particle of mayonnaise with water. 
Nanotechnology is also at the forefront of mechanical engineering. Things like circuit boards and robots can be made at the nano level to carry out complex processes. A magnetoelectric nanorobot, invented by Professor Sutik, received the Guinness World Record for the smallest robot. His amazing creation at just 30 nanometers wide can enter the human bloodstream to deliver drugs at the cellular level. Another interesting way nanotechnology is making a difference is with climate change. It's being used to improve sustainability and access to natural resources, with inventions such as molecular water filtration and self-cleaning materials. It can also help clean up air pollution and greenhouse gases with nanotech catalysts that removes carbon dioxide from the air and reconfigures it into chemicals we can use in the industry. Pretty amazing, right? And that's our take on the letter N. I'd say we nailed it. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out nuclear, natural gas or naval engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkidslive.com slash engineer. We'll get another letter from the A to Z of engineering at the same time next week on the show. Right now, let's do my favourite bit. I hope it's yours too, where we answer your questions, right? If you know that you have something science that you want answered, you can rely on me to do all that science digging for you. All you need to do Get on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. Record your question there as a voice note so you can star on the podcast. I can hear what you're thinking and I can answer it for you. Our win in Gloucestershire is first up this week. Left this as a review on Apple Podcasts. They want to know, why do we close our eyes when we sneeze? And is it possible to sneeze with our eyes open? Well, it's all to do with our nervous system, Arwin, which is our brain and our connection of senses and all of the wires that run through our body. When your brain sends a message to your nose that there's something in there that's not right, we need to clear this place out, we need to give it a clean, you sneeze, right? You have a big puff through your nostrils and it blows out anything that's in there. Now, that same action also makes your eyes close. The message that tells your nose to puff out also tells your eyes to blink. You close. It's probably to stop whatever germs we are pushing out of your body making their way back in. And to answer the other part of your question, Arwen, yeah, you can sneeze with your eyes open. It is possible. It's not easy to do. But yes, you can. Thank you very much for your question. Let's get another one on. This is from James, who wants to know, why do we have different languages? We have a lot of different languages. There are around 7,000 different ones all around the planet that are spoken. But the thing is, not all of them are that different. Some of them are like other languages. We'll come to that in just a second. Now, when humans move around the world, as they have done for hundreds of thousands of years, the way that they have spoken changes. The dialects they use, the way that they use their mouths can, can completely change. It's because... Groups grow independently. They do their own things. They need to use words to mean different things. It's a bit like maybe at school with you. In your friendship group, do you kind of have ways of speaking, like words that you use that are so particular with the way that you use them? No one else would really understand what you mean. It's kind of like that. I think, think of languages a bit like a tree growing. 
as time passes, more branches appear and newer branches come out of older branches and small ones come out of that. That's how languages work. They all stem from each other. Like with a big, strong main language like Latin, that's one big, thick tree branch. And then smaller ones come out of that like French, Spanish and Italian, which all take inspiration from the main one. So that's why we have different languages, James, over 7,000 of them. Thank you for your question. If you want something answered next week on the show, please make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. It's so easy to do there. Just send over a voice note. You can do it at funkidslive.com to find the Science Weekly page while you're on there. You can click that big record button and let me know what you're thinking so I can pop it in next week and you can be the star of this show. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, wicked and strange things in the universe. And this week, we're heading out across the universe, over 20 light years away from Earth. That's about 120 trillion miles to look at a very strange planet indeed. Gliese 581c is a super Earth, which is what what experts call really big planets. It's around 5.5 times the mass of Earth. Now, here's what's amazing about Gliese. Scientists think that it could be habitable, there could be life there, but only on part of it. You see, the problem is, it doesn't spin. Earth, we rotate through the day, don't we? Which is why we get night and day, it's why we get different seasons through the year too. But Gliese doesn't spin and it's very close to their star, their version of the sun. Which means one half of it has a lot of light, it gets very hot, it's always day, it's burning up, it's always summer, the other half of it is always night, it's forever in the dark and it's freezing cold. Now both of those halves would be extremely dangerous to live in. You'd be boiling or you'd be frozen. Now that's where something called the Terminator comes in. The Terminator is the line around the middle that splits the planet in two. One half would be light, the other half would be dark. You've got a zone right in the middle where light meets dark. And scientists think that right there, there could be perfect conditions for life. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, sometimes it's light, sometimes it's dark. So there you're perfect. But if you're in any other part of Gliese, 581C, a huge planet, it's a super Earth with a very uncatchy name. If you're anywhere else, you're too hot or you're too cold. And that puts it straight on our dangerous damn list. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly, and this week we are dealing with one of the most important topics of all history throughout the universe. Ancient cheese. We're talking to Miranda Evans, who is an archaeological PhD candidate who has been studying how they made cheese thousands of years ago. Miranda, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. What I love most about doing this show is I get to chat to all sorts of people who are interested in all sorts of different things, and I have to say... Yours might be the most brilliant and out there. Why did you decide to focus on old cheese and cheese making? (laughs) Because cheese is a very, very important development. That is why I decided to focus on it. The reason it's so important, if you'd like to know, is because during the Neolithic, when I studied recently, almost everyone was lactose intolerant. So no one could eat fresh milk or consume fresh milk without getting the negative side effects that you get if you're lactose intolerant and you drink milk. But cheese isn't like that. Cheese has a lot less lactose in it than fresh milk does. So the fact that people were able to consume dairy in the form of cheese meant that there's this amazing nutritious food source that they could tap into much more easily. 
than before. It brings us to questions that I think a lot of people wonder about foods. Why did they discover this? So you've got a load of people back then that can't drink regular milk because it sends their guts all over the place. But So instead they, they curdle it and leave it for ages. What do you think made prompted them to do that as a way of trying to get lactose or, or eat cheese rather? Ah, it's a really good question. And it's it would be really difficult to know because the thing is that you, you can still consume small amounts of milk if um, you're lactose intolerant. It's just a bit uncomfortable. Um, so probably people were still consuming it, but when they realized that they could, you know, be a little bit more comfortable by consuming things like cheese or yogurt instead of fresh milk, that was probably the logical thing to do. Um, yeah, we'll never know exactly why someone said, I'll eat this fermented milk ah. instead of the fresh stuff. So let's talk about the processes you've used then. When you've decided that you want to look at old cheese and old cheese making, uh, what, what do you do? Where do you start? What, what, what questions are you asking and looking at? So I study essentially the muck left on pots that are excavated from the ground. So I study the lime scale that usually we hate being left on pots. I love it because it traps proteins, which is what I study really, really well. One of my collaborators sends me these ancient pots and I very carefully scrape off a little bit of the muck that is hopefully left on them. And then in a lab, I extract it and I do a big database search to try and work out what ingredients were in those pots so long ago. And cheese might just be one of them or specifically milk. When I find milk, I then try and scrutinize aspects of the structure of that protein and the proportion of different types of dairy proteins to try and investigate if I can say it's cheese there and not just uh, the ingredient milk. Where does your questioning and analysis of the cheese stop? Is it just in discovering that well, it's cheese, or are you able to kind of figure out what cheese it is, where it came from, how old it is even? That's a really good question. At this stage, there's, there's certain levels of specific types of cheese that people have been able to answer, but it depends on how well-preserved your sample is, what's still there, what hasn't decayed, and it depends if the particular parts of the protein that we need to say certain things are there. For instance, when... You make cheese with rennet, which is an enzyme, which uh, is used in some types of cheese making. That enzyme cuts the protein, capicacin, at a very specific point. If rennet's used and you have that part of the protein, then we should be able to say whether it's a rennet cheese compared to a different type of cheese made with, say, lemon juice or some acid. But if we don't have that part of the protein, we can't really say whether or not it's a rennet cheese. There's other things like there was a lovely piece of research where there's this burial from Bronze Age China. And um, it was someone buried with this incredible necklace made of what looked like cheese curds. What an amazing thing to be buried with. And they were able to find the bacteria that makes kefir. I don't know if yes. you've ever tasted kefir. But... Well, because we're told to drink a lot of kefir at the moment because it helps out with your microbiome. It's this fermented milk, right? Yeah, so that bacteria which ferments the milk, they detected those proteins. That's one of the ways that you might be able to say something more specific. But at this stage, unless it's one of those quite specific situations, it's a bit difficult to say. What I looked at was the proportion of whey proteins 
to card proteins, which is the uh, liquid soluble to non-liquid soluble proteins. Cheese has generally a higher curd to whey content than fresh milk. So I sort of used that characteristic and compared my ancient pots to modern pots that we'd made cheese in to try and see how the proteins compared in those uh, situations. And is this evolution at work, Miranda, over uh, the last 5,000 or so years, that folk who were living back then were mostly lactose intolerant, but because we have been eating cheese for a little while now, our guts through natural selection are much better at dealing with it? Is that what we're seeing? Oh, I really couldn't say. That's really a question for a geneticist. But what I do know is that about around the Bronze Age, so you know, several thousand years later than um, the pots that I analyzed, it was that long until most people in Western Europe and some other parts of the world became lactose tolerant. Wow. So it was a long time that we know that people had milk and were consuming milk, but were lactose intolerant. So that's why I am excited about cheese and think it could be the answer. (laughs) They were drinking all this milk and wondering why they were all getting really, really, really sick. So the way we make cheese today is normally on farming with a huge scale. You get these massive metal vats, these big cylinders, and they literally churn out the cheese. How much do we know about how people back then, thousands of years ago, might have made cheese? I would imagine it would be on a much smaller scale. Yes, I think so. I think we can say that. We do have evidence for strainers, so ceramic vessels with lots of little holes in them that were probably used to make cheese, we think. There's one of those from the site that I analyzed, and it was probably a process of having a bowl with your milk in it, using some kind of either enzyme like rennet or acid like vinegar or maybe not lemon juice in Poland, but some kind of acid to cuddle your milk into cheese. And then pouring those curds and whey into your strainer. And there might have been other processes that were more complicated, like uh, maturing it, but at a base level, that's how you make cheese. And you don't need that much milk. So it might have been a case of when you had the milk, you did this, or when you had a surplus of milk. It probably varied quite a lot because when you look around the world at the amazing number of different cheeses and dairy products, yogurts, and different types of things there are, it varies so much. Now, I'm not sure if your family is the same as mine, Miranda, but when Christmas comes around, my dad will spend like a good few weeks banging on about cheese, this perfect cheese. It needs to be old. You know, the older the cheese is, the better it can't go moldy, that kind of stuff. And generally, you know, he's still healthy now, touch wood. The big question, and I'm not sure if you're going to know this, but can you eat 5,000-year-old cheese? (laughs) Oh, um, I think that's uh, something that might really annoy the curator of the the pottery. Um, yeah, I don't think it's advisable. I'm not sure whether or not it would be healthy, but I don't think it would be advisable. <laughs> Maybe a wise answer. It's been a real joy talking old cheese. Miranda Evans, thank you for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Before we finish up this week, just got a very quick trip, something small. We are headed out across the solar system to the smartest school. Going to Deep Space High right now. We're getting an episode from our Destination Mars series for the last few weeks. We've been joining Professor Pulsar and the class, learning how our adventures on Mars are getting on, how we're doing, making a rover to explore Mars to find out if there's ever been life there. The problem is navigating and moving all around Mars is hard. We heard last week 
that it's tough to land, but if you make it, it gets even harder. Because without being able to be in constant contact with Earth, the ExoMars rover has to look after itself. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Where's Quark? He does know we're in the robotics lab today, doesn't he? Sorry I'm late. Uh, uh, I got lost. But you've got a map of the school. Even ExoMars rovers don't get as lost as often as you, Quark. Now, what do we normally do when we get lost? Ask for directions. When I got lost, I gave my mum a quick call on my mobile and I described the area where I was and she told me how to get home. Sensible suggestions, but the ExoMars rover can't get help from other people as easily. Why not? Why can't the scientist on Earth control its directions and drive it around? Well, for starters, a message from Mars can take 20 minutes to arrive. That's hardly a quick call. And there are only one or two opportunities to communicate each day. Basically, the ExoMars rover has to look after itself most of the time, and that includes most of the navigation. I hope it's got a map then. It's got more than a map. In fact, the ExoMars rover will be one of the most independent robots ever built for space exploration. Once it's got the target location, it can even choose its own route. Choose its own route? That sounds like a living thing. How does it make decisions like that? Its navigation system uses 3D cameras on top of a mast that helps it to see in much the same way as we do. Cool. So the cameras are like eyes? In a way. The cameras map the safest and fastest route to a target destination, as well as keeping an eye on the rover itself. The images are used to make a map and plot a safe route. Of course, as it travels, the terrain will change, so every moment that the rover is travelling, it's answering the following questions. Where am I? What's in front of me? Where do I need to go? What's the best route? How's my driving? It creates maps that highlight areas where there may be risks and areas where it will be safer to travel. It plots a safe route metre by metre and sets off. The ground is seriously rocky and hilly on Mars. How does it stay upright? Good question, Stats. Check out the wheels. So this is how the ExoMars rover gets around. It has six wheels, each made of titanium. Each wheel can be steered independently and even pivoted, made to rise and fall, which means it can stay level no matter how rocky or soft the ground. That is cool. But it's not going very fast. Well, it's better to be slow and steady. That's right. The ExoMars rover can travel at a maximum speed of two centimetres per second on the flat and over a day could travel up to 70 metres per day when navigating itself. It's expected to travel up to four kilometres over the duration of the mission. Not bad for a robot all on its own. And almost as fast as Quark. <laughs> Deep Space High, Destination Mars. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you've got a question that you want answered next week on the show, make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. You can hear so many of our brilliant series there. Fun Kids is a children's radio station from the UK. You can listen all around the country on your DAB digital radio or at funkidslive.com. 